If you want access to bonus episodes, reading lists for every series of Empire, a chat community, discounts for all the books mentioned in the week's podcast, ad-free listening, and a weekly newsletter, sign up to Empire Club at www.empirepoduk.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to Empire with me, Anita Arnon. And me, William Durrell. Now, um, we left you on a cliff edge, I know that. Uh, but just for those of you who, who weren't there for our first episode, we are in the midst of a story of what seems to be a little diamond, but actually is a story of empires, uh, a story of many empires and how the symbol of power becomes this one diamond called the Koh-i-Noor Diamond. So this is a story, if you've missed, go back and listen, because we are taking you on a journey from prehistory, from mythology, from Hindu scripture, and we're going to take you all the way through the Mughal Empire, through the Persians, through Afghanistan, through the Sikh Empire, and we are going to plop you at the end on a cushion in the Tower of London. So that's our aim. <laughs> that's what we're planning to do. So let, let's just let's just go back to to why this particular rock may be imbued with such supernatural powers. Because if you have heard of the Koh-i-Noor, you might have heard that it is a cursed diamond. You might have heard that there is a, a saying about it that only a woman can wear it impunity. And if a man wears it, a mere human man, it will reduce him and his empire to dust. It is the reason that we don't have kings wearing it in this country. It has been worn by Queen Victoria, but then only by queen consorts, never by the reigning male monarch. I don't know, we sort of try to work out whether it's because spouses are dispensable. <laughs> you know, whatever happens to them, it's fine, next. But but the, the story, perhaps, although as William says, you know, there's so little, little factual evidence, but it could be because it is conflated with something called the Siamantica gem. So in Hinduism, there are texts, and those of you listening in India, forgive me, this is, you know, uh, it's stuff that you know already. But in the, the Puranas, in the Vedas, there is a story about the sun god, Surya, who comes down to earth. He meets a king, a mortal king, who is dazzled, who can't see him and says, look, you know, you're too bright, you're too shiny, I can't look at you. Can you appear in a, in a more reasonable form? So he, this god, Surya, this, the god, sun god, shrinks himself down into a stone or separates his brilliance into a stone, which is the Siamantica gem, and then the, the king can look upon him. And he gives him the stone. He says, you know what? The fact that you wanted to look at me, the fact that that was important, the fact you did it with such piety, here is, here is the stone. You look after it. Well, this king, whose name was Satyajit, he then dies, <laughs> eventually. They're happy. Not, not, nothing bad happens to him. But he passes it on to his brother, and this is where this curse idea of the Siamantica, they, they become really joined, fused together. Because his brother goes on a, on a little trip into the forest. You know, I mean, arguably not the cleverest thing in the world to go into a deep, dark forest with your most valuable gem around your neck, but he does. I mean, there are many, many bad choices made in the Koenor's <laughs> life. This is one of the first, potentially. But he goes in and he's attacked by a lion who eats him. And the lion trots off with the Siamantica in its mouth. And is then attacked by the king of the bears, who rips him to shreds. <laughs> and 
<laughs> and then William, what happens? Tale, it's a it? jolly. I mean, this is you know, it's not, it's not, it's not proving itself to be quite lucky so far. And then after the bear king has it, then Krishna gets involved. Krishna is accused of having stolen it uh, when when the stone disappears. Yeah, and for those of you in Britain who don't know, Krishna is one of the pantheon of Hindu gods. He, you'll see him. He looks blue. He plays plays a flute. Uh, has peacock feathers in his, his and hair. he's quite mischievous. Yeah. So it wasn't beyond reason that he could have have have, have been responsible for his disappearance. So he's sent off um, to prove his innocence, and he has a big battle with the bear god, mm-hmm. uh, and 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 gets the cymatic, gives it to his father-in-law. Oh yes. Uh, then is and he and he has he's given a wife. His the 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 the, the, the owner's daughter is married yeah. to Krishna. Is and the then, king, then the father-in-law yeah. is killed by robbers who come right. steal the gem, and Krishna has to get it back a second time. Many Hindus are brought up with these stories from from childhood, and 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 it's you know as as, as much part of uh, of people's knowledge of myth as as you know the stories of the shepherds in the in the stable in Bethlehem are right. Christians or. There is this belief uh, in India that diamonds can be very, very unlucky. Yes. And that with a supreme hero, diamonds are okay. But that with a lesser mortal, so Krishna, for example, would have been okay with the... Uh, they were uh, the naughty gems. I mean, the spinels and the rubies were the nice gems, but the diamonds are the naughty gems. Diamonds are problematic. And of course, you know, this may just reflect the reality mm. that if you're wandering around with diamonds, people are quite likely at any period <laughs> of history to knock head. you on the head and yeah. pinch them, whether it's the, yeah. the tube today or whether it's the jungles yeah. of Uttar Pradesh in uh, in the centuries BC. Now, where we were previously on this conversation, <laughs> previously on this conversation, William, um, we had left these fine people in Kalat. Uh, it's the year is 1740-ish. Kalat is on the border of Afghanistan and Iran, and the diamond has been taken from poor old hapless Mohammed Shah Rangila. Poor Mohammed Shah Rangila, who is an Egypt, but is a sweet Egypt, but is an Egypt. And he has now gone to Nader Shah, who is a much more austere person. It's still, though, isn't it, on the peacock throne? It's still the head of the peacock of the peacock throne. So the Kohinoor is sitting on top of the peacock, on the top of the peacock throne. And it's sitting between Afghanistan and Iran, Nadir Shah is the new power on the block. He's knocked out the Mughal Empire, which has been the biggest power for nearly two centuries. And having taken all the wealth away, it's like extinguishing the boiler of the Mughal Empire. You could imagine taking a mirror and throwing it out a third-story window. It hits the ground, it smashes into a million parts. That's what happens to India at this point. Every small town, Jodhpur, Jaipur, Hyderabad, Delhi, Agra, Tanjore, and so on, becomes effectively an independent city-state. Meanwhile, the big empire is to the north. Nader Shah is, is, is sitting in Kalat. And in this one fortress, he has the entire loot that the Mughals gathered over two centuries from all of India. It's just sitting in one fort in boxes. And one of the first things he does is he takes the Kohinoor off the peacock throne off the head of the peacock. And he straps it to something called a bazuband, which is like an armlet. Mm. And he wears it as a, as a, as a sort of double act. On, on his left hand, uh, he has the Kohinoor. On the right, the Timor ruby. And so for him, these two stones, one red, one gorgeously uh, brilliant diamond, um, are sitting there flashing on either arm, the symbol of his conquest. Because the, because the Timor diamond is, is, is a kind of Persian stone. Sure. And the Kohinoor is the ultimate Indian stone. But there's something entirely masculine about this. So at, at the time, you know, it, it's not that women wore jewellery. This is, this is, these are rocks of conquest sitting on the bicep of a man who wants to flex 
it is the ultimate flex. And that's that's what, you know, the, these huge gems represented in those days. They wouldn't have been worn by women. They would have been worn by men. They're symbols of sovereignty. Uh, women did wear jewels, but these kind of jewels, these me, you know, like the, the mega fauna of yeah. jewels hmm. uh, is worn by men and it's worn by kings. And in India, in fact, we didn't say this earlier, but it's a very important point. In the early Indian courts, you have a strict hierarchy of what gems, what rank of person can wear. So, you know, if you're a, an accountant, even if you're a rich accountant, you're not allowed to wear a diamond in public. No, you wear a pearl, but that's fine. You can't exactly. wear anything else. Mm. And, and, and it's strictly uh, um, tied to your rank. And, yeah. and often in Indian courts, people wore almost nothing except stones. And they were, uh, and they were an indication of your rank mm. and who you were and what you were. So when you sit there, like Nadir Shah, with the Timur ruby, the greatest of all rubies on one arm, and the Kohinoor, one of the largest diamonds on the other. It's a statement. It's a statement of like, come on over here if you think you're hard enough. I mean, to put it in modern parlance, <laughs> it, is, it is a sandwich board of strength, which is, the, these are the empires that have fallen before me. And for a long time, no one is strong enough to come up. And Nadir Shah, having seen off uh, the, the Mughals, goes around Central Asia and Iran, seeing off, he, def he, he takes on the Russians, he takes on the Ottoman Turks, the two great powers of the day, does very well against both, extends his empire down to Baghdad. And in the end, he's brought down not by any of his foreign enemies, but by his own clan, because he's become basically a psycho. He's nuts. He's nuts. I mean, he's, uh, this is not overstating the point. He is, um, so we were talking about this, this so-called cursed notion of the Kohenor, that it corrupts, and no man is fit to wear it. You know, that's the, the, the ancient curse is supposed to say. But this is a man who's a very capable leader, who commands great respect, who suddenly becomes a paranoid maniac, who starts looking at those people who are loyal to him, who have done nothing wrong, even if they are blood relatives, and all he sees is enemies everywhere. And, and he literally, you know, this is a, a, used as a, as a sort of phrase, but he builds pyramids of skulls. He genuinely builds pyramids of skulls of his enemies all over Central Asia. He, you know, he, he molds them into nice, <laughs> nice really pyramids. Makes you, makes you miss Ringilo more, doesn't it, really? <laughs> and uh, when the moment, I think, when everyone realises that he's totally lost it is when there's an assassination attempt and a bullet hits the saddle of his horse. And, and one bullet hits the saddle and one bullet hits the horse and the horse dies, but he's fine. But after this, he's constantly looking for who are his traitors, who've, who've taken a pot shot at him. And he assumes, uh, wrongly, that it's his son. And yeah. he has his son blinded and has his well, son's so, so, eyes brought to him on a platter. So this is this is so, again, I mean, we talk about these things being Games of Thrones, but I think there are lots of stories from the actual Kohenor history that have informed the folklore in Game of Thrones. I mean, I'm, I'm absolutely certain of we're it. Coming, we're coming we're up to, come one to one of the a big ones. <laughs> but this is, you know, this yeah. is a man who, so did he watch his son being eye gouged? No, or he, he just gave, he the orders, gave the order. But then... I think he did ask for the eyes Should to be bring me the eyeballs of my son. And his son had done, we, we, to what our knowledge, We now nothing, know his son had done nothing, nothing at all. Wrong. He wasn't responsible for the assassination attempt. Wow. And this is the thing that sends him over the edge because mm. when the eyeballs are brought to him on a plate, he looks at them, then he bursts into tears. Yes, because his eyeballs he, are looking up and going, Papa. It's like, just and, awful. and he says, what is a father? Oh, what is a son? Yeah, well, not that. Ideally, we can no. safely say not that. Um, but he gets his, doesn't he? Because um, so he's a he's a middle aged man at this point. So he's a middle aged man. He's conquered the greatest. He's he's, he's taken on in battle yeah. not one but three of the. So great you you would, and you know time. is he a happy man? Well, whether he's happy or not, his his family are definitely not happy, <laughs> as you can imagine. If he's going around blinding them, and eventually there is a plot to do him in. And one night he is in his tent when his cousins storm in and 
he's in bed with a concubine and they take a slash at him and I think they cut off one hand and he fights on with the other hand and a sword and he puts up a a, a very decent last resistance in his tent before he's cut down by all his enemies. Okay. There then erupts the greatest night of mayhem in Persian history because the whole army hears that he's been killed and they go for the jewels. The 8,000 wagons of, of mogul loot are still sitting in crates or, or dotted around the treasuries. Yeah, why wouldn't you? And no one is... Uh, no one is... Um, no one's guarding it. It's a complete power vacuum. It's chaos. And particularly, obviously, they go for the peacock throne. The peacock mm. throne is sitting there. The man who sat in it is now dead. And so all these soldiers are going at it with their bayonets or their knives. Just hacking and, it to pieces. And there's actually an eyewitness account. Mm. Um, a, a Scottish traveller called James Bailey Fraser interviews as an old man one of the men who was a young man was there with a knife prizing pearls out of the peacock throne. Uh, and there's murder, there's mayhem. But while all this is going on, the head of the bodyguard, who's a man called Ahmed Khan Durrani, and Ahmed Khan has been implored by the chief wife of Nada, who's a very clever cookie called Chuki. Mm -hmm. Chuki says, protect me this one night, protect me and my women, and I will give you the Kohinoor. So the Kohinoor, which presumably was on a bazuban, maybe he took it off when he went to sleep. But she would know she's where got, it is. She, I mean, it's very plausible, she's, isn't it? She's got it. And, yeah. and this sounds, we, we have this from two or three sources, so it's not nonsense. And it's, and it's entirely plausible that a, that a woman who now has no longer got the protection of her husband is going to be seen as loot. It's going to be, I mean, the, the way in which, and it's still, unfortunately, the way of the world today, but rape is used as a weapon of conquest. Christina Lamb's done this wonderful Excellent book, book on about this it. Yeah. Today. So, so Chuki is quite quite clever to say, look, so I will Chuki give you the most valuable the right gem and and take it, but you've got to save my life. And Ahmed Shah Durrani is one of is a man who owes everything to Nadir Shah. He was when Nadir Shah first entered Afghanistan on his way to Delhi. Ahmed Shah Durrani is a is in prison in Kandahar, allegedly for pickpocketing. Wow. And Nada gets him out, realizes his his uh, his qualities, promotes him, and he's now the head of the bodyguard. And on this occasion, he's failed to protect uh, Nada, but he protects the women. And in the morning, when this after this night of May, you can just imagine it: all these soldiers hacking at these boxes. Which is sort of it's just I, I mean, I sort of see blood and yeah. and, and gems skittering across the literally, floor. Literally, that's the case. Yeah. It's literally, the case. Yeah. all by the light of flares and, yeah, and, yeah. and you know bonfires and things going up in flames. And in the morning, having formed a ring, one imagines, maybe around the harem or however they they protected the women. They ride off with them to Kandahar mm. and with them they have the Kohinoor diamond. And then they have a stroke of luck because on their way, just before they reach Kandahar, they meet the salary train. All the money that's going to pay the soldiers uh, who, who are still rioting and, and running amok um, falls into the hands of Amishadron. So as well as having the Kohinoor and a handful of gems that he's taken from the tent. He actually has the entire year's pay of the army mm. uh, in his, and this wasn't planned. This was a this was a, a fortuitous thing for him. But it, these two things basically act as the capital, which he then sits down in Kandahar and brings together the chiefs of what we now call Afghanistan and forms for the first time a country in Afghanistan. Right now, we should at this point say that we do have a very good idea of what the the, the diamond looked like. Because, so, we, we, I've, you know, we've mentioned that the thing in the, the Tower of London is much smaller and it is entirely transformed from what it was at the beginning. And at the time that Durrani has it, I, I mean, you, you've said before, I think it's a really excellent 
um, description. It's like Arthur's seat, isn't it's it? It's very flat big, on the top. Big dome on yeah. top, and it goes down to these these kind of small tail, if you like. Like it's shaped like a tadpole. It is shaped like a tadpole, and yeah. it's got these sort of like yeah. great sort of they're, they're crudely slashed sides, if exactly. you like. You know, exactly. they're, they're slopes like big ski slopes. But now, it's but enormous. It's big. It's yeah. huge. Size of a duck egg. I mean, what what, what is the carrotage? I always lose count of the carrots on this. From memory, two hundred and two hundred seventy six. Yeah, two hundred seventy six is the number yeah. that sticks in my head as well. That is huge. I mean, if you think that you know, most people have one carrot diamonds if they're very very lucky. <laughs> two hundred seventy six carrots in this rock. This is a crucial moment. So we've seen how it was possibly part of ancient India. We don't know for sure. It's certainly a part of Mughal India. It's moved to Nadir Shah, which is a whole new empire. And now we're at the beginning of another chapter, which is the the, the creation of Afghanistan. And in the week that follows the assassination of Nadir Shah and and hacking a part of the peacock throne, Amish Adirani, using the Kohinoor as collateral, effectively, he summons all the chiefs, of what will become Afghanistan. Afghanistan, up to this point, has been part of other empires. It's been part of the Safavid Empire, a bit of the Mughal Empire, uh, a bit of the Uzbek Empire, and so on. But for the first time, you get a, uh, you get a state which forms with roughly the borders of modern Afghanistan. Mm. And funny enough, this was in the news, this day was in the news last year, because when the, the Taliban seized the Arg, the palace of, uh, of the Afghan president, where Hamid Karzai had ruled from, and Ashraf Ghani, there was a famous picture that was in every news, uh, front page of every newspaper in the world of them sitting on Ashraf Ghani's desk. Now, behind that desk was a photograph of this moment. Yeah. Behind this desk was a picture of this moment, a painting of a Sufi giving Ahmed Shah uh, the, uh, the right to rule Afghanistan, giving him his blessing. And this is the moment that the Afghan state is founded. So this is why, as well as being the diamond for many Indians. Yeah. It's also the diamond for many Iranians because of Nadisha and the diamond for Afghans because it's there at the moment the Afghan state is is started. Okay. So so this explains why always the emotions of fever pitch whenever we've toured with this this talk. <laughs> I mean we we have literally we've done a Facebook talk William and I which started off on one timeline we were talking to india then pakistan joined in <laughs> so india has one, our Cyber diamond give us back out, our diamond yeah. you british give us back our diamond then the pakistanis came and saying it's our diamond it was from lahore then afghanistan joined in <laughs> then the iranians pitched in yeah. uh, and it was quite the free-for-all so so look so does it make him happy i'm sure of all the people that have the Kohinoor have have well actually there's several people that have incredibly gruesome ends because of the Kohinoor. but i is one of them he he then conquers quite a lot of Nadir Shah's territory. He conquers quite a lot of India. But even as he's getting kings and nobles to submit to him around the whole region, his face is being eaten up by a cancer. And at some stage, he decides it's so revolting that he has to cover it, like Robocop, uh, one of those movies. He covers it with a sheath of silver studded with many... Like, like a Phantom of the Opera like kind of, of the thing. Opera. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But... Even that doesn't do the job because apparently, according to one eyewitness account, maggots <laughs> dropping out <laughs> Sorry, from I don't underneath. Know why I'm laughing. <laughs> I do know why I'm laughing. I know. I don't listen. I'm not a psychopath. It's not that I find maggots dropping out of this man's face amusing. I'm just thinking back to when we wrote the book together because this is all, you know, these stories are all contained in the book that we wrote. Um, and meanwhile, we shouldn't forget, you mentioned Game of Thrones. Meanwhile, the Persians are still looking for the Kohidok. They don't. They, I mean, we know that it's gone off with Abishar Durrani and he's got it in Kandahar. But the various contenders for the Persian throne are still yeah. slugging it out on the Persian border. And one of the people that rise to the top is, is a, a former eunuch 
of Nader Shah. And he is busy trying to find the diamond. And he calls in one of Nader Shah's children. And basically, he straps oh. him to a chair yeah. and tortures him because he's convinced that he has it. And he has many other gems, but he doesn't have the Kohinoor because it's with Amr Shah Durrani. And if, when finally, having extracted these other gems, but failed to get the Kohinoor and convinced himself that this man is hiding the great secret, he ties him to a chair and he gets his men to make a crown of paste, which he, uh, which he puts it, and he then pours molten gold over the head uh, of the son of Nadia Which is Shah. a direct scene from Game, Game of, of Thrones. Thrones. Yeah, exactly. so, um, okay, so, 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 so the reason... Watson, I think, knows, I need knows to, these stories. I need to explain that. why I was laughing. Yeah. I feel that I need to... This is a whole new side of your character. <laughs> like, <laughs> like some kind of witchy cackle in the background. It is because I started telling you a story, but then quite rightly, there was more gore to come. Um, uh, William and I competed against each other. It, we started calling it Gore Wars. <laughs> <laughs> you definitely won. We, we would, we're not, I was in we're not even there yet. We're, we're not even... We're not even to my bit yet, but it was, I mean, it was, it was quite something. So William would be in India, suddenly pop up on my phone saying, I just found this thing. Are you sitting maggots. down? Maggots out of his face. And I go, I'll see I your maggots and I will raise you. I, mean, I won't tell you what I'm going to raise you because that's coming up in a bit. Um, but yes. Okay. So, so maggots. Yes. One of the big battles he fights, famous to everyone in India, 1761, he fights the Battle of Panipat. He defeats the Marathas. The Marathas look as if they're going to take over the entire uh, uh, Indian subcontinent. And suddenly we're going to have Hindu rulers ruling India again. It doesn't happen because in 1761, Amin Shah massacres the entire uh, Maratha army, who fight very bravely but hopelessly against the swivel guns uh, of Amin Shah Durrani. And um, not only does he have this horrible end, but he, he, he leaves chaos for his sons. So his, his, his successor is a man called Timur Shah, who rather unhelpfully for a man wanting to conquer the world is a dwarf, which teeny, doesn't start. Teeny, tiny Timur Shah. Teeny, tiny Timur Shah. I like to think of it. Who, who <laughs> in the, in the, you know, having got a lot of these jewels, then makes himself an enormous jeweled um, sort of stepladder to get onto a horse. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe extracted from the former mask, <laughs> jeweled mask oh, of his father, yeah. uh, and he he rules a fraction of the empire that uh, his his father had ruled. And then you get his son who's a guy called Shah Shujuramulk, who I wrote an entire book about called Return of a King, which maybe we'll come back to. We must, we must do a whole episode, episode of that yeah. because it, it is fabulous. That book is fabulous. But just in a nutshell, Shah Shuja, you have very unkindly, and I can see why you do it, <laughs> but there are pictures of Shah Shuja and you have described him variously as Gimli. <laughs> he does look a bit like dwarf. Gimli the dwarf he in does. Lord of the Ring. <laughs> Okay. And, 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 so, yeah. what is the things have not gone well? I mean, there no, is no. there is a parallel in modern Indian <laughs> politics to the decline of a like, of a great yeah, dynasty, yeah. you know, from Nehru to Dira to yeah, Rajiv to yeah. Rahul. Okay, that is rather well, similar. You, you may say that I couldn't, couldn't possibly, possibly comment. comment. But um, just so tell tell us about so Shashuja, apart from looking a little bit like he should be hacking away at a mountainside, what is his personality? He's, so Shashuja is actually a remarkable guy. And remind uh, us what uh, era we're talking here. So we're now talking. I suppose 1800 mm -hmm. and his elder brother has briefly become the, the Shah and instantly everyone turns on him and he is imprisoned in a small fortress at the top of the Khyber Pass. He, he, he gets caught in a blizzard and he comes into this this border fortress and asks for shelter uh, and now you know just it's only 20 years since his father, who ruled the entire region, was, was the all-powerful guy. But now so, so much anarchy has broken out, so much chaos, that when he goes in to take shelter, uh, the Shinwari tribe capture him, and he hides the Kohinoor in a crack 
in his prison cell. Yeah, wonderful. And I think previous to this, knowing that things were a bit dodgy, he hid the Timor Ruby under a rock where, he, where he'd gone for his ablutions. In, in a river. Sources. Yeah, a just river. under a rock and in a in river. In a river. Mm-hmm. And so the two greatest gems in the world, one's in the prison cell and one's in a river at this point. So Shah Shuja's brother, Shah Zaman, has secreted the Kohinoor in a crack in his prison cell. He's earlier hidden the Timor Ruby mm. in a rock. Under a rock. Under a rock in a in river. A river. <laughs> That's right. Okay. And uh, when his when Shashuja comes into power and avenge, to avenge him, the first thing he does is to send out search parties looking for these two stones. Mm-hmm. And one, the Kohinoor, is found on a mullah's desk as a paperweight mm-hmm. being used um, to put, to keep the sermons from blowing away. So this is Morvi does not have a clue. Morvi hasn't got a clue. Morvi's a pious old man, doesn't know what he doesn't he's know got, a diamond. and he's just literally using his <laughs> paperweight on his desk. And meanwhile, the Timor ruby has been found by a young student who went bathing, yeah. uh, and that's also retrieved. So Shashuja gets his two stones back. Um, but again, everything goes badly wrong. He forms an alliance with the new power on the block, which is the East India Company, but it's too late to save him. And he shortly ends up in a prison cell in Kashmir. His wife, who's a remarkable woman called Wafa Begum, then goes to the other new power on the block, who is the head of the Sikhs, Ranjit Singh. So we've just had an introduction to the Sikh Empire, the British Empire. Do you know what? Let's take a break. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee, and you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewelry that makes you look like the gem, sneakers and streetwear so fresh, every step feels fly eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii, okay? And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. 
In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. So just before the break, um, we had introduced Ranjit Singh, who is quite a character, particularly in the North Indian he's, he's a figure that Looms every, every Sikh knows backwards, but lots of people, I think, won't. So, so I, I mean, ethnically, I'm Punjabi, and that Punjab is a place in the north of India. Ranjit Singh was a, a baron, a missildar. So he is supposedly, you know, quite, quite he's a noble, but not really that noble. He is brave, though. So at the time that all those shenanigans are going on with people gouging out each other's eyes, this is a man who's born in 1780. So by 1800, it's, it's a young man. We estimate, you know, nobody really wrote down dates properly <laughs> in those days. But as a young man, he rides out from his village across the north of India, and he starts to conquer everything in his path. He starts conquering First of all, small villages, then bigger cities, then Lahore itself. And he starts to unite these people, much as uh, Amitya did in, in Afghanistan, these different tribes and missiles together into one kingdom, which becomes the Sikh empire. Shah Zaman, the man who hid the Kohinoor in his prison cell, when he's leaving Lahore, mm. he asks Ranjit Singh to help him get his cannons out of the mud. Exactly. So this is this is a man who has now got power and authority. Not only that, he shows the 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 Indians, the Indian side of the the mountain range, that we can keep the Afghans out. So almost immediately that he he draws this dotted line around yep. his empire. Before that, the Afghans would regularly just come over the mountains, raid, take whatever they want, come down, so raid, murder, India, loot, go back. rape disappear but he says no more this is not going to happen anymore in my kingdom and he he unifies a really very wealthy part of the world so even today the north of india punjab is known as the breadbasket of india because it has the fields it has the irrigation it's called punjab is the land of the five rivers so it's one of the most irrigated places in india and even to this day produces the majority of wheat for example in in all of asia so there's ranjit singh the vafa begum the, the lady that you've just referred to, who is desperate to get Shah Shuja out of clink, <laughs> goes and appeals to the man, the enemy across the border, who is Ranjit Singh, and says, listen, you've got to get him out, get him out, get him out, get him out. And he says, why should I? <laughs> Quite reasonably, what's in it for me? And the Vafa Begum says, I will give you the Kohinoor diamond. And he says, well, what's that worth? And she famously gives this wonderful analogy that if you throw a rock up into the air as high as you can and then throw it to the left as hard as you can and then throw it to the right as hard as you can and fill that entire space with gold. That is the value of the Kohinoor diamond. And in fact, it's quite significant that, he, that she has to explain this because, yeah. because at this point, the Kohinoor is not the big famous stone that it is now. And also, he's and not a man who cares about jewels. I mean, let's, you know, also, you know, the, the character of this man, Ranjit Singh, unlike the Mughals who, who liked to wear their wealth, he comes from the Sikh faith, which is, you know, comparatively new in India. And they are like the Protestants. They've come in, they're not for idolatry. They're not for big temples. They're not for showy showiness. Um, he himself just wears white clothes. He doesn't sit on his own throne. He has something called the Golden Gaddi, which is a golden throne, but he doesn't sit on it. He leaves it 
empty for Guru Nanak, who's the spiritual uh, leader of the Sikh tradition. So he's not really that bothered, but he's bothered about this one. Because this one is the stone of power. And, and in due course, and this is why he's important to our story, he's the guy, he wears it on his own. All the others, like Nadir Shah and Amit Shah Durrani, mm. had worn it along with the Timur Rubib. So Rafa Begum promises him this rock. And he says, all right, I will help. And he does, doesn't he? I mean, he does go and he help. He, well, he, he invades Kashmir and takes Kashmir. And so he adds Kashmir to, to his, his kingdom. portfolio. And springs Shah Shuja mm -hmm. from prison. And so he's brought back to Lahore. And they then sit down and they face each other. And Rajit Singh says, so where's the diamond? So where's the diamond? You promised me the diamond. And, and Shashuja says, uh, famously in, in diplomacy, this happens a lot. Uh, diamond, what diamond? <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. And he says, your wife, your wife told me if I sent men and spilt blood and coin to get you out of there, you'd give me the diamond. And he says, don't know anything about that, governor. Sorry, no idea. So, so Ranjit Singh, according to Shah Shuja's memoir, this, this is, is something this is really which is disputed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's something which is not yeah. in the Sikh sources, obviously, yes. but which, which Shah Shuja uh, very much puts into his own memoirs. He says that he gets Shah Shuja's son, son. and mm. tortures him in front of in his father until yeah. he hands over the diamond. And the Sikh sources say he convinces him. <laughs> he convinces him. So and I, actually, again, a deal I mean, is this, a deal, and he should hand it over. This stone mm. is not something that brings out the best of anyone at any really, point in history. <laughs> really not. Really not. So the diamond is handed over finally. There's um, this very uncomfortable meeting at a place called Mubarak Haveli, which is still I've, I've been to it in 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 Lahore, where Shah Shuja has been lodged, and. He's, they sit, the two men sit facing each other in silence for 20 minutes until eventually Rajit Singh makes a sort of gesture saying, where, where the hell is this diamond? Yeah, enough now. And Shashu just flicks his fingers and gets a eunuch to bring a, 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 a dirty cloth and it's placed in the middle of the room. I love that detail of it being in a dirty cloth, which just shows the descent of, uh, you know, I'm handing it over, but I'm handing and it over with all the ill will. He just puts it in the middle and Rajit yeah. Singh has to, has to reach forward and, and pick it up. So what's, what happens next is really, I think, very significant because here is here is a man now just to describe uh, Ranjit Singh for you at this time he looks older than he is he's he's got a white beard if you look at sort of court paintings from the time he's only got one eye because he's had childhood smallpox we think that has robbed him of the vision of one eye he walks with a limp he's got a pockmarked face He's not beautiful. But he loves to surround himself with incredibly beautiful courtiers to almost compensate for that. Yeah, exactly. And so, you know, the, so, but he takes the diamond, as you say, and he wears it on its own, on his arm. And at this point, you know, this diamond is now really saddled with the reputation that it brings down empires, it brings down strong men. And the way he wears it is almost as if he's thumbing his nose at all powers, temporal and supernatural. He wears just very simple white pyjamas mm. with this one stone on his arm. And this is the point that it first enters the... The British notice. The British notice. Yeah, the little glint of the diamond catches their eye. And from this period, you get the first references in British sources to this amazing diamond. Yeah. And anyone that goes to see Ranjit Singh hopes to see it. So, well, he, show, he shows yeah. it. I mean, the, the thing about this diamond with him is that wherever he goes in his kingdom in the north, you know... People talk about King of the North and in, in, <laughs> keep coming to Game of Thrones. I'm not obsessed, but it's just, you know, he's the real deal. So whenever he tours around, he takes his diamond with him. It's like, you know, it's the thing that everybody turns out to come and see. The way in which he transports and protects the diamond is also extraordinary. So his master of the Toshakana, the, the, the treasury, is a man called Beliram, Mr. Beliram. And Beliram is charged with protecting the stone protecting the stone as if it's a member of the royal family. It's that serious. So the diamond goes out 
behind Ranjit Singh in a caravan of sometimes, you know, there are descriptions of 40 camels Each following. Each with identical panniers. Everything looks the same. Both, all the baskets on all the camels look identical, but only one of them has the Kohenor in it. And only Beliram in the entire kingdom knows which one it is. When he sleeps, he has it and other baskets chained to him his body so that if somebody comes they're going to have to rifle through numerous baskets to try and find where's Wally where is the diamond <laughs> and in the meantime he can spring up and slit their throats so you know this 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 is a man who has perhaps the most onerous task but Ranjit Singh wherever he holds his darbars or his uh, his his governmental meetings he makes sure he has this this diamond strapped to his bicep against the, the absolute epitome of masculinity and sometimes it's just kept in is it called Govindgar? The imperial, the imperial fortress treasury, which Ranjit Singh puts all his treasure in. And it's still there. It's an it's incredible mm. sort of blockhouse. Uh, and it's the strongest place in the realm. So just to sort of give a picture of what's happening at this point. So by now, the East India Company... And eight, early 1800s, yeah, just to early remind 1800s, people. Early by now, the East India now. Company, yeah. which is a commercial company. It's not mm. the British government. It is a, it, it's a public limited company. It's got shareholders. It's got... A, Board of Directors, and it's run out of a, a relatively small office in 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 the city of Leadenhall Street. Leadenhall Street, yeah. And through in the chaos which followed the collapse of the Mughal Empire, which itself followed the fact that Nadir Shah had taken all the money away, and there was no no, no money left to pay the the soldiers, the civil servants. The East India Company, a corporation, has gobbled up the whole of India, and it's done it in the most sort of bizarre way. There are only, at the time of the Battle of Plassey, which is the first big battle when, when the, the, the company really gets going, at that point, there are only 35 employees in the head office in Leadenhall Street, which itself is only five windows wide. It's a tiny building. And in India, there are only 250 white civil servants. But what they do is that they borrow money from the Indian bankers, particularly the Mawari Jains, and of all of them, a group called the Jagat Sets. And the Jagat Sets and the other bankers realised that these guys actually speak the same language as them. Although one are beef-eating Englishmen mm. and the others are vegetarian Indians, they understand the business of, of interest rates, commercial contracts, and they may loot, they may plunder, they may do all sorts but of But they do, do a capital return. <laughs> they do a capital return on time, mm -hmm. in full, and they don't argue. While often Indian rulers hang up bankers by their feet and, and you know, if they ask for the money back. So these guys say they may be awful, they may be mm. foreigners, they may be heathen. But we can literally do business with but these But we can guys. do business with them. Mm -hmm. And they provide the capital with which the East India Company buys an Indian army. So they, they recruit sepoys who are Indian soldiers, train them up as mercenaries, and by the time that the Kohinoor is back with Ranjit Singh, the East India Company private army in India is 200,000 strong when the British army is only 100,000. It's a private company in an office in London controls an army twice the size of the British army. And if you look at sort of Indian sources at the time, they describe these, these, these armies of the East India Company as just sweeping across the land like locusts, just taking everything in their path. And that's what they've done. They've now controlled the whole, either directly through conquest or by alliance, they control all of India south of the Sutlej River. But they can't go north of the river. And because they, Ranjit Singh is sitting He won't there. let them. And he also, so the Sikhs are a martial race. It's part of their identity that you are a man, you must fight. So just a little bit of background on, on this Sikhs. This is your in-laws. Well, <laughs> my in-laws, indeed. Um, so, so Hinduism has a caste system, as most of you will know. But then when the Sikhs come along, and I describe them as sort of like India's Protestants, they say enough of this. We're not going to have caste division anymore. 
everybody will re be reborn the same. So whatever you were before, now your surname will be Singh. If you are a man, Singh means lion. And if you are a woman, you will be Kaur, which means every woman is a princess. So in one fell swoop, that's it, the end of caste. They also say you will be a warrior saint. So that means you will be pious, but you must fight. You must learn how to fight. So that's also sort of part of the, the very nature of being a Sikh. And that's for men and women, which is interesting. And one of the things that had allowed the East India Company to defeat all these Indian armies so quickly is the fact that there's been a military revolution in Europe. You have horse artillery, muskets, bayonets, all this stuff. And using this new technology, the East India Company, in just 50 years, has taken over the whole of India. One office in London takes over the richest country in the world. India's producing about 40% of the world's GDP at this point. And they've been taken over by the East India Company because of this technique. What does Ranjit Singh do? He may have the, you know, the, 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 the most macho warriors in North India, but he needs the technology. And so what he does is he gets Napoleon's generals. Right. And a whole load of ex-Napoleonic soldiers and officers mercenaries. to train his to train yeah. his army. They, I mean, his his army is felt stuffed full of European mercenaries. So you have all these strange yeah. men, like sort of General Avatarbali, who's who is an ex-Napoleonic general shipped over from Sicily to run Peshawar. What is the name of the Tartan general? Alexander Gardner. Alexander Gardner, who will figure large in a while in this story. He will. He's, he, he is literally, he's, he, he wears a tartan salva kameez. And, and a tartan turban. <laughs> I've seen pictures of a tartan turban on him as well. So there we are. So Ranjit Singh is able to repel. Oh, actually, they don't even try. They don't even try to cross the Sutledge because they know if they do, and they'll be the massacred. It's extraordinary. Yeah. He builds up this amazing, rather like the Russians today in Ukraine, they have a massive Heavy gun advantage. battery. And, yeah. and Ranjit Singh starts these artillery factories in uh, in Lahore. And so the, 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 the British know that if they try and cross the Sutledge, they're going to be met by this hail of lead. So from, from sort of around 1800 to 1839, this is a man who has unassailable power in the north. Nobody can challenge him, cross him. No one dares. It doesn't mean they haven't got their eye on it. Especially the British have got their eye on it. And also interesting that they don't just have an eye on his kingdom, but they also have an eye on the diamond. Because the diamond, they recognise that propaganda value of that means power, that means power to all Indians. I mentioned earlier this guy, James Bailey Fraser, who's actually my wife's ancestor. Mm. He has a brother called William Fraser. And William Fraser leaves probably the first report about the Koh-i-Noor of any, of any uh, British letter writer. Uh, the East India Company sends a uh, mission to Shah Shuja just before he's toppled. And they see Shah Shuja wear the Koh-i-Noor uh, in Peshawar. And from that point, everyone who turns up at the Punjab is reporting on this diamond. And the Brits are longing to get their hands on the Punjab and they're longing to get their hands on the diamond, but they can't because of all this artillery. And they basically have to wait until Ranjit Singh gets da old well, and gets dies. Old and, yeah, but they, they, I mean, even when he's old and infirm, they still don't. But when he dies in 1839, that's their chance. And that might be actually a good place to leave it. Thanks very much for listening to Empire. We're going to be back with more murder, mayhem, the rise and fall of great <laughs> empires. Um, so do join us again. Goodbye from me, William Durrimple. Goodbye from me, Anita Arnold. <laughs>